and welcome to Alhambra Investments Weekend Update. I'm your host, Joe Calhoun, President of Alhambra. Stock markets moved higher again this week as earnings season kicked into high gear. The economic data was generally a little weaker than expected, but that didn't stop the yield on the 10-year Treasury note from moving solidly higher, breaking above last year's high of 2.63%. Commodities were generally flat on the week, as even as the dollar continued to slip lower down for a fifth week in a row. And we ended the week with the government shutdown as Republicans and Democrats failed to agree on a bill to keep the doors open. I have no idea how that's going to affect the markets come Monday if no deal is struck over the weekend, but nothing else has stopped this bull market, so that probably won't either. As I said, stocks did move higher on the week, S&P 500 up a little less than 1%. Uh, And despite that, and despite the fact that uh, U.S. stocks are getting all this attention for breaking record after record, it is foreign markets that have actually performed the best recently and over the last year. Uh, Last week was no exception. Emerging market stocks were up uh, almost double the S&P, up 1.9% for the week. And within that category, China, uh, talking about the U.S. traded ETF FXI, was up nearly 5% of the week. That's about as much as the S&P has for the whole year. Uh, Latin America was also a a star performer, up 3.3%. And Europe had a good week, up about 1.5%. Asia was strong, with the exception of Japan, Uh, which was up but not nearly as much, and that pulled the IFA index, which is our broad international benchmark, uh, pulled that back a little bit. So you ended up with the IFA and the S&P up about the same. Uh, Emerging markets do seem to be a little bit more sensitive to these dollar flows and and, and movements of the dollar. But the big news on the week really for markets was this bond market move where the 10-year yield jumped over 2.63. Now that's an important level because it was the high for all of last year. Um, you know, it's interesting, too. It was, it was a week of, of, of fairly weak economic data, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. So it's kind of surprising that the yield did jump. Uh, but rates were just really up across the board. The two-year yield was up as well. Uh, but for a change, the long end moved a little bit more. The 10-year Treasury note yield was up a little bit more than the two, so that the yield curve steepened a little bit. Now, that's important because the yield curve is one of our most important indicators of future economic growth. Flatter curves are associated with weaker growth and steeper curves with stronger growth. It's just that simple. Now, it isn't anything really significant yet, but if the steepening continues, it could mark a big change. Uh, The long end has not moved higher as the Fed has been raising short-term rates, and that's very similar to to the last business cycle, uh, and and Alan Greenspan dubbed this a conundrum. Of course, it wasn't really a conundrum. Uh, It's actually just a difference of opinion about future growth and inflation. You know, Greenspan was very optimistic about the economy and and has control over short-term rates, and so he pushed short-term rates up. The long end, though, is controlled by the market, and basically what it boiled down to was there was a difference of opinion between Alan Greenspan, or the FOMC, if you want to put it that way, and the market about future growth and inflation. Uh, As we know now, uh, it turns out Alan Greenspan was wrong. There was no conundrum. The market was right, and he was wrong. Uh, anyway, the Fed's hiking rates and long end, again, is not going up and not moving in lockstep with the short end. And so, you look, the, the market, the long end of the market is driven by, uh, you know, is not controlled by the Fed. And even the short end, I, w- I shouldn't say it's controlled. It's much more influenced by the Fed, but it's not controlled by the Fed. Um, but the big question, I guess, then is why did rates go up last week? Well, I think it actually might be related to that falling dollar I mentioned earlier. You know, the dollar really has accelerated the downside since the beginning of the year. It's been in a downtrend really since last year, um, and it's but it's down five weeks in a row. It's been really quite weak this year. 
a uh, big part of the reason, for, and that's a big part of the reason for these foreign markets outperforming. A falling dollar means uh, other currencies are rising. So if you own, say, European stocks and the euro is going up, you make money two ways. You make money on the stocks and you also make money on the euro. Uh, and you do usually see stocks rise too, uh, since one of the main reasons a currency rises is because there's optimism about growth. The euro is rising relative to the dollar basically because people think that growth in Europe is going to be better than the U.S., and so we're really talking about rates of change, too, by the way. So what they're saying is that, is that the European economy will accelerate more than the U.S. to the upside. Um, the bigger impact of the falling dollar, though, is on commodity prices. And a big part of the reason why oil prices are up 20% over the last year is because the dollar is down 10. Uh, it's also at least partially why you see copper and aluminum up 20%. Gold's up 11% over the last year. That's all, uh, at least part of that move. It's not all about the dollar, but certainly a big part of those moves is about the falling dollar. And all that feeds through to inflation, uh, which, of course, negatively impacts bond prices uh, or is a positive for, for rates. In other words, rates rise when inflation does. It probably also explains why TIPS, uh, the inflation-protected bonds, have outperformed other parts of the bond market over the last couple of weeks. By the way, the best-performing bonds last week were actually emerging market local currency bonds and other non-dollar-denominated bonds. That, that currency effect has an impact on bond markets just as it does on stocks. And emerging markets, as I said a few minutes ago, they're impacted more by these dollar movements than the larger developed economies. Capital inflows, capital tends to follow these currency movements and create these currency movements. So if, for instance, the Brazilian real is going up, in a sense, that's capital flowing into Brazil, going out of the dollar, out of dollar-denominated securities, and into Brazilian real-denominated securities. And because those markets are smaller, the economies are smaller, uh, their, their stock markets are smaller, so capital inflows can have a really big impact on their economies of these emerging markets and also on the markets in these emerging markets. Uh, we also see the dollar's influence in other markets. Uh, as interest rates have ticked higher, U.S. REITs and other interest-sensitive stocks have also taken a big hit, like utilities, for instance, were, were down pretty hard last over the last couple of weeks. REITs are down about 4% over the last month. But if you look at the foreign side, you look at foreign uh, real estate companies, they're up 3.5% in that same time. Uh, and that trend continued last week. The foreign uh, outperformed the domestic. We've also seen a rally in commodity-type stocks extended into the new year. Oil stocks are up over 11% in the last month, and global material stocks are up about 8%. And those stocks were flat last week, though it looks like they're kind of resting a little bit here. They've had some pretty big moves. Let's move on to the economic data, which was, like I said, surprisingly soft, uh, considering the continued stock market enthusiasm, if you want to call it that. I think uh, irrational exuberance uh, phrase might be uh, appropriate here, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, we did get two regional Fed surveys last week, as well as the Beige Book. The Beige Book is actually beige, by the way, and it's written for uh, by the uh, by uh, economists. It's not it's not about the prose; it's about the actual cover of the book. Uh, the Beige Book is produced for the FOMC meetings, and it usually comes out about two weeks before the meeting. Anyway, we did get that last week. We also got uh, two regional Fed surveys, one from the New York Fed and one from the Philly Fed, both of which were less than expected. But now, let's be clear, less than expected doesn't necessarily mean bad. Both of these reports were still pretty strong. Uh, these surveys, though, they've been really quite strong since the election uh, last year. Uh, and it's the change that matters here. 
You know, these things have been coming in very strong and better than expected for a long time. Now they seem to be coming in. They're still pretty strong, but they're less than expected. And remember, you know, markets are fairly efficient. They're not completely efficient, but they're fairly efficient. So what's expected is in the market. It's when you get things that are unexpected. That's what moves markets. Anyway, the Beige Book was also, I think, surprisingly downbeat compared to uh, other recent versions of this, of this report. The report called growth modest to moderate overall, with the job growth modest, and auto sales were, were, were described as mixed. Uh, manufacturing growth was described as modest. Non-residential construction was, des- was described as slight. Uh, residential construction as constrained. Uh, so overall, the report contrasts quite strongly with how the economy is characterized by Wall Street and, of course, the Trump administration, which has been trumpeting the move in the stock market and talking uh, very positively about the economic uh, condition right now. Um, anyway, uh, moving on to some of the other reports. Mortgage applications were up last week uh, for purchases and refinances. Uh, look, That's just really a function of fear of higher rates. Uh, people are uh, probably rushing to get their financing in place before rates go up more. Look, everybody knows the Fed's going to be hiking rates. They've been very clear about that. That could feed through to mortgage rates, so anybody that's looking to buy a house or refinance is probably looking to get it done pretty quick. Industrial production uh, report last week did confirm that beige book view of manufacturing. The headline was higher than expected. It was up 0.9, but if you just look at the manufacturing part, that was only up 0.1%. Uh, all the gain, uh, almost all the gain, in the headline was due to increased utility output. It was really cold up north. <laughs> By the way, the low today down here in sunny South Florida is expected to be a frigid 67. Housing starts were indeed constrained, coming in at much less than expected 1.192 million rate uh, annual rate. That's down 8.2% of the month with single family, which you know single family has been the strong part of this market. It's been pulling these numbers higher in recent months. That was down over 11%. Multifamily uh, starts, that's apartments, partially offset that loss with a 1.4% gain. But look, multifamily has been in a downtrend for over a year. So uh, that's just a, a one month blip. It probably doesn't mean that much. Uh, you know, new home sales, though, have been breaking out to a new high, uh, especially last month was just a really, really strong month. Uh, you know, it may be a one time thing. I'm not sure. Or maybe the starts is a one time thing. But I would just point out that starts right now, housing starts, are no higher now than they were in mid-2015. We may be making progress, but it seems to be pretty slow. Uh, Let's see, jobless claims. Jobless claims were, uh, I think, an incredibly bright spot in last week's data. One of the few uh, really positive, better-than-expected reports that we got. Uh, The previous week, we had gotten a a number of 261,000, which was actually higher than the previous year, uh, the same week the previous year. Um, but this week, down to 220,000. That's a level we haven't seen since the early 1970s. And, of course, population was a lot smaller then, so 220,000 meant more back then than it does now. And look, we watch claims because they've become, over the last few decades, pretty well correlated with the stock market. When jobless claims are rising, stock market tends to go down. Uh, when jobless claims are falling, the stock market tends to go up. Uh, and, and they are kind of an early warning sign for recession, too. Uh, we usually get concerned when we see the four-week moving average of claims turn positive year over year. Uh, we obviously are not there yet, especially after this 220,000 number. That's the low for this for this cycle so far. Um, anyway, not there yet. That probably describes uh, the economy pretty well right now. We're slowly progressing through the business cycle, but we're not close to recession yet, at least according to the indicators that we track. There's a lot of noise in this economic data from week to week and month to month. 
Uh, much of it is, is subject to some big revisions. I mean, you know, employment reports get revised from positive to negative sometimes after they finally get to the, to the final revisions. Uh, but we've identified a small number of indicators that we watch that have proved reliable in the past, and they're just not pointing to anything that's more than just status quo. Uh, we've been in this 2% growth path for a long time now, years, and it doesn't look like it's changing despite what the stock market is doing. Um, stock markets seem to think we're on the verge of a boom. Currency markets, uh, bond markets in particular, don't seem to agree with that view of the world. The news last week was dominated by this spending bill negotiations, which they didn't get a deal done, so the government, as of right now, is shut down. Now, it's a weekend, so I'm not sure that really means all that much. And look, I don't have any idea how the market's going to react to this on Monday. I think you could probably look back at previous shutdowns, and there's been some volatility. Uh, but frankly, this bull market has been the most amazing, uh, resilient thing I've seen in 30 years of, of doing this. Uh, so I, I'd really kind of be surprised if you get any re reaction out of the market at all. The other news of interest uh, for investors last week was mostly on the earnings front, and so far they have been quite a bit better than expected. Of course, earnings are always better than expected. Companies sandbag and, and tell you they're going to make X when they know they're probably going to make you know 1.1X uh, because they want to please Wall Street. They don't want to get people uh, too uh, expectations too high. Anyway, look, we'll wait for a more uh, in-depth report. We'll do a more in-depth report on, on earnings uh, you know, when we get closer to the end of the quarter. Uh, when all the reports are in. Uh, I do want to point out a couple of reports that were kind of negative, though. Uh, IBM and American Express, uh, I think I want to highlight those because they, they give us some indications about tax reform. Um, I don't think the tax cuts are going to be nearly as big a boon as the stock market seems to think. And my reasoning is really quite simple. Uh, some companies are going to benefit from this and some companies are not. Uh, the fact is that the effective tax rate for the S&P 500 was not a whole lot different than this 21% new rate. And so obviously there's going to be some companies that were paying 35 they're going to be they're, that are going to benefit. And of course we're hearing from those guys now, but there's going to be other companies that are going to be paying a higher rate and we're not going to hear from them until they absolutely have to say something. IBM by the way apparently is in that latter category where they're going to see a higher rate. Uh, their stock was down after reporting earnings, and that's actually it was actually probably the most positive report they've had in quite a while. It's the first time they've had any top line revenue growth since 2012. Market didn't care. Uh, market you know knocked it down anyway. American Express also uh, had some problems with the reforms. Uh, they're going to pay these taxes uh, on their overseas earnings, and because of that, they've decided to idle their their stock buyback and stop their buyback for right now. So that they can rebuild their capital levels. Look, I think it's interesting. You know, these these uh, earnings and taxes that these companies are going to have to pay on these earnings. It's real money going out the door. Uh, it's not a, a one-time write-off or something. Well, maybe one time, but it's not some non-cash type thing like a lot of write-offs you see. Uh, this is real money going to the treasury, and it's coming out of corporate pockets and going into, into Uncle Sam's pocket. I don't see how that's a positive. You know, Apple made some headlines last week, too. They, they announced that they're going to be building this new campus and they uh, hiring 20,000 workers over the next five years. And they, they kind of tied this into tax reform. And, of course, they did that, I, I, I guess it was maybe last week or the week before, they announced they're going to be paying a $2,500 bonus to employees, and they tied that to tax reform. And all I can say is that Apple knows how to play this PR game. Uh, and I think they're interested in making sure that the president doesn't uh, get upset with them for whatever they happen to be doing. Uh, they're massaging his ego a little bit because 
when you look at this thing, when you look at the announcement, it really wasn't saying that they're going to hire 20,000 people and build this new campus because they're bringing money back from overseas. In fact, they didn't really say that they were bringing the money back from overseas. They said they did say, though, that they're going to pay the taxes on it. $38 billion. That's what their tax bill is. Biggest tax bill I've ever heard of. Uh, so they're going to pay that money out. And, and, you know, real money is going to have to go to Uncle Sam from Apple. Look, the hiring in the campus building may happen. The tax man's got to be paid. So that $38 billion is definitely going out the door. I'd also point out, too, that I, I did find out that the employee bonus, uh, while it's nice to get $2,500, uh, it's not what it seems. Again, uh, this is being paid in restricted stock units, which vest over a three-year period. They're not paying out any cash because of this. Like I said, Apple knows how to play this PR game. Anyway, I'm going to end this week by talking a little bit about a recent article I saw in the, in the Financial Times called A Bitcoin Bubble Made in Millennial Heaven. The article itself wasn't that remarkable, but the comments, one in particular, I think, is pretty enlightening and says a lot about where we are uh, in this economy and, and, and I think from a societal standpoint. Here's the quote. I find the article laughable. I should point out that I am a millennial male, though, so I would think that. We invest in Bitcoin because we are broke and you cannot earn any significant amount of, by working. And honestly, this entire market proves what we all suspected. Working is for suckers, and it will not get you ahead, and money makes money. I have said on here before, I made several times my salary in Bitcoin last year, and I have a small group of friends who have all made 200000 plus in this market for doing nothing. Risks are socialized and gains are privatized. Act accordingly. The attraction here is the lack of regulation. No one is under any illusion that these risky markets, these are risky markets, and that you can lose your whole investment. At least, at least I can get in on the market early. All I remember about the dot-com bubble is that Mark Cuban unloaded a bunch of companies I've never heard of and became a billionaire. Bubbles create winners and losers. You know, I think that's an amazing statement about how the millennial generation sees our economy as one of, of uh, where, you know, winners are about luck and they're about, uh, not about hard work. You know, I think, too, you know, it's a kind of a case of uh, the Fed fiddling while the economy burns. Look, there's a, a very serious debate underway right now at the Fed about how to conduct monetary policy. They have this uh, inflation target they set a few years back of 2%, and they just can't seem to hit it. It's almost like they don't know what they're doing, inflation oblivious to their administrations. So the latest debate is whether the inflation targeting regime that they're using now should be replaced with price-level targeting, which sounds suspiciously like inflation targeting because it is. Uh, it's just inflation targeting with a memory. It says that if your long-term goal is 2% and you have a year that comes in at 1%, well, you should aim for 3 the next year. Of course, the Fed can't hit 2 so I don't know how they think they're going to hit 3 I don't know the exact origin of the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, but if ever that phrase applied to a debate, it is this one. Uh, Andrew Sandberg, by the way, calculated that upper limit is 8.6766 times 10 to the 49th angels. Not sure where he came up with that, but it's... Uh, uh, kind of typical of economics to try to turn everything into a science. Uh, scientism, I think, uh, is what uh, Friedrich Hayek called it in his Nobel, uh, Nobel acceptance speech. Anyway, while the Fed is busy debating the merits of, the, of adopting this slightly modified inflation target, we're in the midst of our third asset bubble in 20 years. It's as if the Fed is trapped in one of its own models, unable to see what is plain to anyone with even a smidgen of historical awareness. Look, bu bubbles do not form out of thin air. 
They are now and have always been monetary phenomena, a clear case of too much money chasing too few assets. Asset bubbles are monetary. And the Fed can deny it all they want by saying, look, look, look how well-behaved inflation is. But, you, you know, they're ignoring the prices of assets, which you just can't do. Look, I, I, bubble is a, is, a, is a strange term, and it's, it's one that's uh, debated widely in the economics uh, community about whether bubbles can even exist. Efficient market guys say that bubbles don't exist. They, they can't exist. But how do I know we're in a bubble? Heck, how do we even know that the last two uh, widely acknowledged bubbles were bubbles? You know, dot-com stocks running up in the late 90s. Was that a bubble? Was the real estate, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it in the middle of the last decade, was that a bubble? You know, the economic conditions that prevailed at the time during both those episodes were very different. So I think it's easy to come along and say, well, they couldn't possibly have a common cause. Uh, They couldn't have, it couldn't both be about monetary policy. Like the first period, the dot-com era had a strong dollar, rapid productivity growth, and falling commodity prices. The second one, during the housing bubble, had a falling dollar, lousy productivity growth, and booming commodities. They're just polar opposites. But they both featured uh, what we've come to realize are, are, were bubbles in technology, stocks, and real estate, or at least widely acknowledged and called bubbles. Uh, and, and even in the real estate bubble, you, you know, you might even add commodities to that list. Oil did go to 140 bucks a barrel. So how could monetary policy be the cause if the economic conditions and the bubble assets were so different? Well, I actually think that those conditions being different in a way uh, and the different assets, they do point to a common cause. And the answer is actually revealed in some ways by this current bubble in Bitcoin. And yes, I think it is a bubble. Now, the Fed's position on bubbles is that you never know one existed until after it's burst. You know, it causes all these problems after they burst, like after 2008. But they say that since you can't see it forming, and you can't call these things a bubble in real time, that all they can do is clean up the aftermath. Quite frankly, I think that's a little too convenient. A rationalization wrapped in a veneer of efficient markets faith. True, there are no agreed-upon parameters that define a bubble, and the concept is foreign to economists who believe in homo economicus, that's the rational actor of economist models who always acts in his own best interest. Economic man is the market, and he has the wisdom of crowds, which I think is just a basic and gross misunderstanding of human behavior. I have a career of evidence that says the crowd is usually right, except at the most important times when it turns out they can be spectacularly wrong. Economists may not know how to define a bubble, but like Justice Potter Stewart observed about obscenity, I know it when I see it. And I have no doubt that monetary policy is a source of, of our serial bubble economy. Uh, I also know I can't prove that with certainty and that there are those who disagree. There are plenty of people who, for whatever reason, are perfectly happy blaming the real estate bubble on Democrats or Republicans, whatever your tribe happens to be, for various misdeeds that allowed Wall Street to fleece Main Street. And they're happy to blame, again, not without completely without cause, Wall Street for selling a bunch of worthless securities with .com in their name. And yet, today, we see stocks rising for no other reason than a name change to include the word blockchain. And we see a metaphorical line around the block wanting in on the latest ICO, initial coin offering, the right to purchase a token which may or may not have any value whatsoever. It may entitle you to something or nothing. And if there's any difference between today's bubbles and the late 90s, I I guess it's only in terminology. The likelihood of these bubbles being driven by disparate forces or just the malevolent nature of Wall Street is approaching nil. 
we've had plenty of bubbles in the history uh, throughout history, and during each of them, we had a Wall Street or some other marketplace, and we had political shenanigans that's always existed. It doesn't mean that they're causing the bubbles that happen to exist at the same time. Indeed, either we are just gullible lot, a, a gullible lot that keeps getting fleeced by an amoral Wall Street, or as I think, the causation runs the other way. It's the bubble that causes the shenanigans, not the shenanigans that cause the bubbles. And I think the appeal of Bitcoin tells us quite a lot about the origins of this bubble economy. Bitcoin didn't just spring from nowhere. It rose from the smoking ruins of the global economy after the great financial crisis of 2008. There was a message embedded in the Genesis block, the first block of Bitcoin that says, it's talking about a headline, it says, The Times, 3 January 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. You know, one of Bitcoin's most attractive attributes, the one I hear cited most often, is its finite quantity. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, and that amount is far in the future. In the meantime, adding to the supply is difficult and expensive. It seems that the designer of Bitcoin, the ever-elusive Satoshi Nakamura, had some ideas about the origins of the financial crisis, and he set out to correct them. Bitcoin is designed to act as a hard currency. It has a finite quantity and a means of payment that bypasses the traditional banking system that he saw as part of the problem. Regardless of whether you believe Bitcoin can function in the real world, its design specifically addresses what its designers and owners see as the root problems plaguing the global financial system. Bitcoin's success proves one thing I think beyond a shadow of a doubt. People want an honest monetary system, one that can't be manipulated for the benefit of the few at the expense of the many. Let's imagine for a moment an economy with Bitcoin as its national currency. The currency is an asset whose available supply grows very slowly from year to year until it's all been mined. And it's hard and expensive to mine, and so it's probably going to take a long time to mine it all and get it all, to, to mine it all. In the meantime, the quantity available for transaction grows by a diminishing amount each year as the mining of new supply gets more and more difficult. If the demand grows faster than the supply, the value will rise and the economy will experience what we call deflation. And if the supply grows faster than demand, the value will fall and the economy will, will experience what we call inflation. And by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, that is a pretty good description of a country operating on a gold standard. I find it incredibly ironic that millennials have used technology to create a monetary system that approximates one that requires no technology at all. Millennials, thinking they've designed something new for the 21st century, are actually just doing nothing but copying a monetary system from the past. Bitcoin is the most obvious bubble today, but I don't think it is the only one. It is very, very hard to justify the level of the U.S. stock market unless one assumes a very rapid acceleration in U.S. economic growth and earnings. Certainly, the reduction in the corporate tax rate is going to have a positive impact on some companies, and those are the ones we're hearing from right now. But some companies are going to pay more, as we talked about earlier with IBM and, and American Express. And that's only going to be revealed in time as earnings are reported. Even among many of the companies that will benefit ultimately, they pay a price up front. As we discussed with Apple, they've got a $38 billion tax bill. That is real money going out the door from corporate America and right into Uncle Sam's pocket. I don't think I've ever seen so many Republicans cheer for companies sending billions to the U.S. Treasury. There are plenty of other examples of bubbles around the world. The behavior in today's credit markets, with standards reminiscent of the last bubble, are going to look really absurd in retrospect. The relative pricing of European bonds, corporates, but sovereigns too, they make no sense. In what world does Greece pay a lower rate to borrow for two years than the United States? 
how can it possibly make sense for a low investment grade company, a triple B rated company, to issue bonds with a negative yield? That was Viola uh, in, uh, in, in France. It's, a, it's a, an entertainment company with a negative yield. How is it rational for a market to oversubscribe a 100-year bond from Argentina? This would be the same Argentina, by the way, that's defaulted on its international obligations seven times in its history, and twice just since the turn of this century in 2001 and 2014. And I've written previously about the unicorn bubble of these still private, unprofitable companies like WeWork with these giant valuations, as well as the silliness of the art market where a Da Vinci, and I I use quote marks around that, (laughs) of dubious provenance goes for nearly a half a billion dollars. Yeah, okay, we had a stupid uh, Saudi prince that paid the bill. Maybe it's more uh, just a reflection of his intelligence level than anything else, but Fact is, it's also an indication of a bubble. It's not the only art market, only part of the art market that looks inflated. Anyway, I think it is safe to say that we have bubbles right now, and they aren't confined to Bitcoin or the borders of the United States. This bubble may be the worst of the three because it encompasses a much wider array of assets. The technology bubble in the late 90s, well, it was mostly NASDAQ stocks. And the real estate bubble was mostly finance. Yeah, the fallout was a little more widespread, obviously. But really, it was one sector of the economy where the bubble existed. But this bubble is worldwide, and it covers assets across the spectrum. I think the fact that it's widespread points to a common cause, too. It isn't just U.S. monetary policy causing this problem. And while they certainly deserve some of the blame, I don't think it's just the, the, the other world central banks. It's not just the ECB and the Bank of Japan. I think it is strictly caused, uh, or excuse me, uh, the problem is the one that Bitcoin attempts in a very clumsy way to address. The problem is our global currency system. I don't come to this conclusion via an elegant economic theory, but rather through several decades of trading markets. I've seen how capital flows impact national economies and markets by observing Latin America from my perch here in Miami for nearly 30 years. It wasn't monetary policy by itself that caused the dot-com bubble. It was a strong dollar policy taken too far by the Clinton administration. My Latin American clients in the 90s didn't care much how their money was invested. They just wanted to be sure it was in dollars. A strong dollar attracted capital inflows that further strengthened the dollar, which attracted more capital inflows, and so on and so on until we had nothing to invest in but pets.com. It wasn't just Greenspan's too-low-for-too-long policies in the mid-2000s that blew the real estate and commodity bubble. It was the weak dollar policy of the Bush administration that forced capital into real assets in an effort to protect purchasing power. And the weak dollar also powered that emerging market boom we saw at the same time. And uh, those same Latin American clients took their money back home to protect it from devaluation, which is something they have a plethora of experience with. And all that reversed again sometime after 2008. Uh, Capital again abandoning abandoning the emerging world in favor of a U.S. economy seen as the cleanest shirt in a very dirty laundry. And that episode of dollar strength in turn reduced the price of oil nearly to the point of causing a U.S. recession as the shale boom deflated. And so it is today that we find ourselves with bubbles built in a world of maximum liquidity, minimum volatility, and unpredictable changes in currency values. A year ago, everyone knew the dollar had to go up, and it's done nothing but go down ever since. Shale companies that were on the verge of bankruptcy a couple of years ago are now thriving with $60 oil. Emerging markets are again the darlings, the favorites of strategists everywhere, until the next time the dollar goes on an extended rally, driven by a change in ECB, Bank of Japan, PBOC, or Fed policy. 
Success isn't driven by hard work and intelligence, as that young man says in the comment on the Financial Times article. It's a function of currency fluctuations, over which a businessman in Rio has no more control than the oil man in West Texas. Who wants to make long-term commitments to actual on-the-ground investments in an environment where capital can move from Paris to London to Buenos Aires to New York City with the click of a mouse over the course of a trading day? How does one invest in a world where your investment can be diminished by a change in monetary policy halfway around the world? Why work when a little capital and a dash of luck can provide you with a lifetime's income in a few years, or months maybe in the case of Bitcoin? This floating rate, rotating global bubble economy we've built since the early 70s is one where speculation and luck are rewarded while work is scorned as a sucker's bet. It is this system more than anything that is the source of our inequality issues and political turmoil. Most people have no problem celebrating someone who's gained success through hard work and intelligence. But when success is seen as purely a function of luck or political connections, it rends the social fabric. It's a politics driven by anger and envy. I don't pretend to know what system should replace the current one that is, quite frankly, more than anything, just a lack of one. We need to find a solution, though. We need to create an economy, a nation, a world where success is once again available to anyone with the drive to achieve it. The Bitcoin mania offers a clue, I think, though, that we should consider. To paraphrase Churchill, the gold standard is the worst form of monetary system, except for all those others that have been tried from time to time. We could do a lot worse, and we have. Maybe the third time is the charm, and when this bubble is finally deflated, we will come together to create a new monetary system, or maybe just return to an old one. You know, I wish it were different, but yes, I do believe we're in another bubble, the third one of my career. It isn't easy investing around these things, but we really don't have any choice. We aren't going to solve our global monetary problems anytime soon, so we're going to have to live in the world we have rather than the one of our ideals, the one where work matters rather than being in the right place at the right time like Mark Cuban. It means being vigilant and acting conservatively with our investments. It means you should keep your portfolio diversified across asset classes and across currencies. Be humble about your abilities to foresee the future because, quite frankly, no matter how much you think you can, you really can't. Risks may be socialized for the big Wall Street firms, but they aren't for Main Street. We have to take care of ourselves. This has been the Weekend Update. I'm your host, Joe Calhoun of Alhambra Investments. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Weekend Update.